Number 6. God's Mission, 4th Quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start Lesson 6, Motivation and Preparation for Mission, in the quarter on God's Mission, My Mission. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator, and David is going to offer our opening prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to come together again and learn more about you, study your the word that you've given us, and we ask that you would guide our thoughts and guide our talk as we go through this. Guide us as we go. Thank you, and bless John as he leads us out. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a part six of a series on mission. And the title indicates that the particular focus will be motivation and preparation for mission. And the lesson focuses on a portion of the Bible that zeroes in on what happened the weekend that Jesus died and rose again, sort of the beginnings of mission, and then the weeks that followed in Acts 1 and 2. So we're going to look at the very earliest moments of Christian mission and explore the motivations, and uh, also preparation that God may have done for mission in those contexts. To get our minds in the framework for this, I would suggest a question, and that is to put ourselves as far as we can back in the first century. And you walked with Jesus for three and a half years, and he died, and you were quite disappointed, and then suddenly it appears he rose again, and you're grappling with the significance of that. And then the question that I want you to think about and respond to is, what did it mean at that point to preach Christ? You know, we often say we should preach Christ more, but I'm not focusing on right now. I'm just saying back then, in that weekend and the weeks that followed, what did it mean to preach Christ? Anyone have an idea? Lou? Well, it meant to share their experience that they had with Christ. I'm sure all of those events happening so rapidly was an overwhelming experience for all of them, because even though they walked with him and saw him partly as sometimes a prophet, sometimes God, sometimes as human, they were very overwhelmed, I'm sure, and sometimes a little confused. They did not understand what he meant when he said he would be in the tomb for three days. So they were probably in a lot of a state of, of kind of a shock and trying to comprehend it all. They were overwhelmed, I think, perhaps. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Larry. Depending on what part of the world you're in and depending on your personal philosophy, picture somebody today with a, or somebody within the last three to four years who's been on the national front of the news who gets people riled up. Either you love him or you hate him. Because during Christ's life, there were people who were coming from a great distance to meet him. So his fame had gone beyond just Galilee. So you have this historical, controversial figure. And I'm fairly certain that even without Twitter, the news of his crucifixion um, and the things that went on in Jerusalem were making their way to the ends of the then known world with pretty good speed. So you now have a group of his followers who are trying to explain that, yes, those are true statements, and yet here are some additional facts that you may not be aware of. So I think there was this huge, intense controversy, which makes it very easy uh, for them. Today, we don't have a lot of, con there's no controversy, at least in the United States about being a Christian. We're not persecuted. Nobody's hunting us. We haven't had our leader killed. So for them to come out and to boldly proclaim the whole story about what went on, I think is a miraculous event. And I find that the great courage, and yet Paul made the comment that he was compelled and there's only a few times in my life I've been compelled to do something, which means full speed ahead, regardless of the torpedoes, we're going forward. 
which we don't often do in any part of our life. So for us to grasp that, I think, requires us to sit down and take a moment and step back and try and put that in the context of what it would mean in 2023 if we had that same kind of event happen to get a full grasp of this picture that's coming up in this lesson. We will definitely want to go there you know, 2023 in a moment. But you said something, I think, that was really helpful about the first century context. And it's one thing to have been in Jerusalem that weekend and to wonder what was going on. But imagine people 30, 50, 100 miles away hearing the news that Jesus was crucified without any warning of why would this happen? It must have been quite disturbing, quite puzzling, quite shocking. So there was a certain amount of openness, I think, to know more about this. And archaeologists have told us that we have, for example, somebody in Egypt wrote a letter to somebody in Asia Minor, you know, what we call Turkey today. And that letter was written and a reply was received within 15 days. That's pretty pretty remarkable. It's not that much different than our postal system today. <laughs> so the news got around pretty quickly. The Roman Empire had very efficient road systems, mail systems, etc. So yeah, but the question is, what when you say preach Christ, is there something more specific there? What did Christ mean anyway, Sean? I think it was full of hazards to preach Christ. The Book of Acts gives us multiple indications that it was a dangerous journey to speak for Christ or to preach Christ in that context. When you have Saul doing what he did to the early church, and you have the Roman Empire that was viciously repressive, they were accepting and welcoming of multiple forms of religion within that domain. But it would have been full of hazards for me to go about, if I were there then, me to go about speaking for Christ in the immediate aftermath of the crucifixion. I think it was a dangerous time, time full of opportunity, but it was also uh, full of hazards. All right, Livius? I was thinking something really basic. Matthew eleven nineteen says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So I think preaching Christ was to be hanging out with these people to, how did he treat these people? Preaching Christ is more than just going to church and preaching a sermon, giving a Bible study. It's how we treat and speak to our neighbors. All right, Bob. I think it would have been a troubling time if if we put ourselves in the place of the Jews We've been taught to support the organized church that we grew up in, and we call that a church, and it would have been unsettling because it would have been challenging everything that we had grown up with. So you'd start to question, are you supposed to follow the scriptures as we knew at the Old Testament, or do you start to incorporate this new thinking into your life? I think that would have been a really unsettling time. Let me bring out one point here that I haven't heard yet, and that is the word Christ. The word Christ is a Greek word. Christus, and it means anointing. And it's the word that early Christians came to use, and I think also Jews came to use for Messiah, which means the anointed one. And so that first weekend in Jerusalem was the realization Jesus was understood to be Messiah. But though he was understood to be Messiah, he wasn't accepted as such. But if he died, and rose again and predicted that he would, and God did that, God had just affirmed to those Jews that he was the Messiah. And that was earth-shaking information, because the Jews had been looking for Messiah for many, many years. And in fact, they were particularly expecting him around the time that Jesus showed up. If Jesus was truly resurrected from the dead, then God affirmed that his claims and the expectations were being met and being fulfilled. So preaching Christ means preaching the Messiah using the Old Testament, but also describing what Jesus was like and the facts about his resurrection from the dead. Who saw it? When did they see it? What did it signify? Etc. So in the original weeks, preaching Christ would have been preaching the Messiah, right? But 
what about the Gentiles? What about Paul, etc.? And often there, the concept of Messiah wouldn't be that useful. And so you see John, for example, speaking of Jesus as the Logos, the word of God. That was a Greek concept, that there was a second God who interacted, was a mediator between the great God and the world. And by calling Jesus Logos, it was remarkably similar to the Christian concept of who Jesus was, but it would have spoken to the Greek mind. The Greeks were anticipating that whatever we're going to know about God would come through this Logos. And if somebody comes along and says, I met the Logos, let me tell you his story. What you have been looking forward to is here. And in the book of Revelation, John describes Jesus in language unique to the goddess Hecate in Asia Minor. In other words, the New Testament writers are very conscious that preaching Messiah might not get them very far in most of the empire. And they became quite creative in connecting with Greek expectations and Roman expectations for the ideal world and the ideal life. So what I see here is that when it comes to mission, the New Testament writers are very creative at meeting people where they are. Clara. I was just wondering, they preached first to the Jews, and then later, I guess, it went over to the Gentiles. But how did they relate it to all these sacrifices that they had been doing all these years, and also the veil of the temple being torn? It would be interesting to see if they approached it in a legal way, or in a way like you were describing about showing God's love. Well, clearly in the Jewish world, the sacrificial system would have been tremendously helpful in communicating what God was doing through Jesus and through the Christian movement. But I suspect that the whole sanctuary system was God meeting the Israelites where they were. I remember walking through the Dead Sea area with an Adventist archaeologist and coming across the ruins of a temple that's looked an awful lot like the one in the Bible. And I said, what's the date of this temple? And he said, oh, about 3000 BC. And I almost fell to the ground when I heard that. It was 1500 years older than the Mosaic Tabernacle. And then I began to realize God was communicating in language that made sense at that time. The Greco-Roman world was full of temples and full of sacrifices. So certainly that could have been part of the way that it was communicated. But I think a point that is very strong in raising this question is that if we're going to do mission successfully, we need to understand who we are talking to, understand their world, and then apply the gospel to them today. So I'm open now to talking about today. What does it mean to preach Christ today? Back then, you had Hellenism. There was sort of one world language, one world empire, one world philosophy, etc. Today, we're living at a time of tremendous fragmentation. What is the Holy Spirit doing in the world today to prepare the way for the gospel? I noticed, Iris, you had your hand up earlier. You don't have to speak to that last question if you don't want to, but I'm interested in what you were thinking. The thought that I had earlier was also that there were witnesses of the resurrection. It was a very powerful event when people who had died arose with Jesus. And basically, it called into question yeah, those who were seen as the authorities on matters of faith, getting it wrong. And the witness of the unlearned, getting it right, speaking in the right way about God. So I just thought it was an incredibly powerful event that really stirred up the then-known world. Resurrection was a pretty stunning thing. We're kind of used to it today because of a long history of Christian understanding, but the Greeks didn't believe in resurrection, and the Jews, in the Old Testament at least, didn't believe in resurrection. There's very little about resurrection. There's maybe two texts that hint at a bodily resurrection in the Old Testament. Generally, that picture is absent. So the idea that someone could be raised from the dead, now, yes, Jesus did some of those, but those were mostly resuscitations in the sense that he came shortly after the person died, and there was a belief that people could be resuscitated within a day or so after their death. That's why the raising of Lazarus just before Jesus' own resurrection was such a stunning event, because Jesus deliberately waited four days 
to do it because he realized that those earlier resurrections didn't make the point. So Lazarus is sort of the first signal that something incredible is happening in our world and something incredible is about to happen. And so preaching Christ was powerfully based on the resurrection and those who experience the resurrection. But what about today? What do you think the Holy Spirit's doing in our world today? What can we latch on to to preach Christ today? Michael? One of the important aspects of being a missionary today is to learning the culture and the language of the people who you're going to take the mission to. The idea that I want to go to China and I expect them to be able to understand English, and that isn't going to go over very well. Mm-hmm. Church missionaries have learned that over the, particularly over the last 150 years or so. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Anthony? There's a Adventist mission, and that's what they do, is they send their missionaries to live in the place that they're supposed to reach out to, make personal connections with the people in the community, and learn the culture and the stories before they start really trying to preach or teach anything. Along with it, I think we bring the Holy Spirit in. There's also, in, for example, in the Muslim world right now, some of them are starting to experience dreams of the man in white. I think this illustrates then how the Holy Spirit has begun to move on some other cultures and some other religious experiences. And if you're there, you can now explain from your biblical understanding what that might mean for that person. That would be significant for them. All right, Lou? Well, I think that we need to pray more and listen more and follow the guiding of the Holy Spirit, because I think we have had in the past, at least, a misconception that what we are supposed to do is to go out and evangelize the world, bring them into the church, have them baptized, and then everything is good. And I don't see it that way anymore. I see that the Holy Spirit is working everywhere. And the latter rain, I think, is just right around the corner. And I think that when we think we have to go out and change people and bring them through our keyhole so that they can be saved, it limits, it really limits God's ability for us to demonstrate his love and acceptance of people. Just like you keep saying, God takes people where they're at. He does not require that everybody comes through my belief system to be saved. I think we're going to be shocked when we get to heaven. How many people are there? I was a general conference kid growing up, and I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) And I think that we've had a narrow perspective of what it means to share God's love, that they don't have to come through our belief system to be saved. So that takes to me the pressure. Somewhere in the little book, Mount of Blessings, it says that God said simply, let your light shine. He didn't say make it shine. We don't have to feel pressure that we've got to go out and and make Seventh-day Adventists out of the world. So I'm thankful for that. To me, it's a relief that the Holy Spirit's doing the work. And if he can use me, wonderful. Many are a little discouraged with the younger generation today because many of them are leaving Christianity, leaving Adventism, and for valid reasons, such as a picture of God, which is not very attractive, such as how they've been treated in local churches, etc. Christianity is not the slam dunk it once was in this country. But I've noticed that there are some important shifts that are really positive with this younger generation. And among those, for example, is a sense of brokenness. This generation is aware that life is messed up, aware that they are messed up. And that's kind of a foundation, isn't it, for receiving Christ? The search for identity, the need for community, the desire for authenticity, etc. But one of the most powerful ones is the importance of story. This generation loves stories. It's the key behind Netflix and, and a lot of these other things that you tell a great story and you can reach a lot of people. Our generation, I'll say my generation at least, has tended to focus on teachings, on doctrines, and not on stories. But we forget that the Bible mostly stories. The Bible is mostly how God was interacting with real people and complicated situations. Much of the Bible isn't just saying, well, thou shalt not kill. There's that in the Bible. 
but the Bible is much more a book of stories. And I wonder if this generation may read the Bible more accurately than my generation ever could, simply because they are hungry for the very things that the Bible does provide, rightly understood. And I would note that the Bible as story was one of the keys of Graham Maxwell's ministry and suggests to me that the more I understand what he was saying, that perhaps his message is more relevant now than it ever was, because it speaks very powerfully to the kinds of things that this generation is searching for. Michael. I was thinking about Bill Loveless on one Sabbath morning. I keep getting these letters and saying, why don't you say something about these, particularly these young girls that show up at church with their short skirts and they're wearing jewelry? They need to speak out about this. And his response was, where would you prefer them to be on a Sabbath morning? <laughs> it really is this notion, if we're going to reach young people, we better be prepared to meet them where they are rather than preaching to them. Preaching just generally turns them off. But if you try to communicate them on a level that is their level, then maybe you can reach them. And you're not going to save everybody, but out of 100, if you save one, that's an accomplishment. Go ahead, Jennifer. I think one of the things that gives me encouragement about good news of God going around the world today is what I'm seeing happening in lives of some of my fellow Adventist Christians. I've had to go through paradigm shifts so many times about my picture of God through the recent years, and I've seen the same thing happening in some of my friends. One of my friends has been taking some chaplaincy classes at Loma Linda. She's a nurse, and she was brought up in a very conservative family. And she told me that her ideas about God and what he's wanting us to do here and now is so different now that she's taken these chaplaincy classes. And she shared with me that in the recent past, she would sit in church on Sabbath and write down the number of times that the pastor would quote from a non-Adventist author. And she'd be very upset about that. And she would just write down all those kinds of things, very negative things during this sermon and that sort of stuff. And I guess she would share it with her friends and maybe the pastor afterwards, because she thought that we should only be learning from Adventist-only authors and quoting from them in church. As she's been taking these chaplaincy classes and had to stretch the paradigm and actually see how her paradigm about God didn't work in certain situations that she was going to be involved in, in dealing with the dying in the hospital. What do you say to them? How do you minister to them? People who've gone through traumatic experiences, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you name it. I mean, they're horrible experiences. And how do you minister to them when they are wanting a face of God somebody to represent God to them in that moment in time. And you might have to do things that a Catholic priest would only do for them or somebody in another religion would only do for them. But you're the face of God at that time, at that moment in these people's lives. And she told me that she has realized that what she thought was black and white before has some shades of gray <laughs> and that she's grown to see that she wants to represent God in a way that will be meaningful to these people. They're hurting, they're in agony, some of them, they're panicking and so distressed. And she's the only picture of God that they might see. And so she wants to represent God well, and her picture of God has totally changed. And she told me that she does not sit in church anymore <laughs> and write down the number of quotes and the number of negative things that she's picking out of the sermon that the pastor gives on Sabbath. And it's funny because her husband noticed this and he mentioned it to her. <laughs> and she sees that she had a wrong attitude before and she likes the attitude that she has now and thinks that she's in a position to minister to people now where she was not before. And I just am grateful for experiences like that, that my friends are having and that they're willing to share with me about their picture of God and how it has grown. Thank you for that testimony. That's very encouraging. And to see the younger generation taking hold of these things, but it will come to them in a different way than it may have come to some of us who are a little older. All right, Luke 24, 1 to 12. Let's get into that first century setting and see what more we can learn from it. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, 
They came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the disciples. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping to look in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. All right. So the women come and what do they experience? They don't meet Jesus. They experience an empty tomb. Well, why is the tomb empty? It could be a lot of different reasons. Okay. But what do these angels or men, as it says here, what is the key? It's dramatic. They did not expect an empty tomb. So something has happened. It's really caught their attention. What do these figures tell them? Remember what he said. Remember the prophecy that he would die and would rise again. So it's a combination of two things. It's what they experienced combined with, in our case, scripture, because that's where we run into the prophecies, the stories of Jesus, etc. And so the women have a combination of two things that happens. First of all, a dramatic experience. But second, a reminder of Jesus' words. The purpose of prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future. The purpose of prophecy is that when things come to be fulfilled, we'll recognize their meaning and understand what it is that God is doing. And these women came to realize Jesus must have been raised from the dead because he himself said so. We forgot that. We didn't think about that. We weren't thinking of his death. We didn't think about his resurrection. But now, suddenly, it all came together. But the 11, they didn't have that experience. Peter's the only one. He went, he saw the empty tomb, but he goes away, as NIV says, wondering what was going on. He did not have the connection between the experience that he had and the words of Jesus. So he and his fellow disciples basically said, these women are talking nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. It's an idle tale. They didn't want to accept what the women said just because they said it. And it reminds me of September 11, 2001. I was in the Netherlands, and I was sitting down to supper when a man from Croatia came up to me and said, have you heard the news? And I said, what news? There's always oh, two airplanes crashed into the World Trade Center, and another airplane crashed into the Pentagon. You know, And my reaction was, uh-huh. I mean, I've often heard overseas rumors about things going on in the United States that are really far-fetched, but they make sense when you're 5,000 miles away. And I just blew it off. I said, the idea of three airplanes crashing in the same day into buildings, that doesn't make any sense at all. And then he says, well, if you don't believe me, come upstairs. We have CNN on the big screen up there, and you can see all about it. Well, I made my way up there in a hurry and was absolutely stunned at the images that I saw and the reports that were happening at that time. Simply because somebody says so isn't good enough. There has to be some corroborating information to go along with it. Peter hadn't yet had that corroborating information and the other disciples, so they didn't know what to make of this report. Clara? I was wondering, where was Jesus' resurrection portrayed in the sanctuary service? Hmm. We know where his sacrifice was. Is the resurrection depicted there? I don't have an answer for you right off the top. I think if I thought about it for a while, maybe I would. But is the resurrection portrayed in the sanctuary service? I don't know. Michael? Well, I think also when those women came to see the 11 apostles, these were women telling this, not men. And women are harebrained and less than and so forth. 
in that society. And unfortunately, in some degree, it portrayed the same way in the current society. And I think it's really quite stunning in the way it is described. These men in glowing white robes and so forth, a couple of angels, and telling them that he's not here. He's risen from the dead, just like he said he was going to do. And they go back and talk to the apostles and said, all they said was, he's risen from the dead, just like he said he was going to do. And they just scoff at him. It's unfortunate. I think if I was present at that time, I would probably be scoffing at it too. I wouldn't believe it either. Why were they hiding in the upper room at that time? The point the lesson makes, and I think it's a very accurate point, is that if you simply have experience, that usually isn't enough. If you simply have the scriptures, you may not get it. It's the connection of the two. It's when they they had this experience, an empty tomb and these brilliant angels. I mean, that'll knock your socks off, right? And then to be reminded, well, Jesus said this is what would happen. And it clicked. And the belief and the passion was immediately there. The disciples, they had the scriptures, but they weren't connecting it to their situation. Their experience was only an empty tomb and didn't know what to do with all of that. So it's a combination. It's not enough simply to share your experience. But when you can share it in the context of scripture, when it all hangs together, that is a powerful message and a lasting one. Uh, Experience alone can bounce up and down. You know, you're excited one day and not excited the next. Scripture alone can be rather disconnected from real life, but the two coming together are powerful. Anthony? I see us today in a similar situation. Disciples have been told that this is what's going to happen, but either they didn't hear, they weren't listening, or they just didn't want to accept that that was going to be a reality. And we know that because he said, they're not here, as he told you. And The question is, why don't we naturally accept what we've been told? Maybe it's a good question, but we also can see that we don't often accept somebody else's experience. So the women had the angels appear to them. They experienced the empty tomb. And women at that time, they didn't really have the same status as men. So that's an interesting side point, but they're the ones that experienced the angels. So when they relayed this message that was their experience, but the disciples did not experience the angels at that time. And they didn't want to believe or accept even after they've been told. So it appears that we can hear and we can see, but we have to experience. It seems to me that God has placed in every human being a natural barrier against persuasion. And that's a good thing, because if it wasn't there, we'd probably change religions every day. So there has to be an integration of several things before a paradigm shift can happen. And the women had that paradigm shift happen right in front of our eyes here. But it tells us the disciples did not. And I think that was a powerful witness in the ancient world that even these disciples who are preaching Jesus didn't get it right away. It took a while for them to get it. So if it's taking you a while to get it, that's okay. That's how human minds function. But it wasn't like the disciples were gullible. They were very skeptical at first. Neil? Could it be that it didn't fit their agenda? Their ideas were the fact, and they were still arguing who would sit next to Christ and everything else in his kingdom when they expected the kingdom to be then. And this did not fit the agenda. That always is a problem, isn't it, for us when we hear something new? Terry, would you read verses 36 to 49? of Luke 24, because that's a follow-up to the same disciples who were so skeptical, Jesus himself appears, and we'll see what happens. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate in their presence. 
Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. All right, the missing piece in this story is the middle part of chapter 24, and you're all familiar with the story. It's the Emmaus Road, how Jesus is walking with these disciples. And what was the subject of the Emmaus Road? These disciples did not have an experience. They did not know this was Jesus speaking to them. All they knew is that he died. And even if they had recognized him, they would have said, no, it must be somebody else because we know he's dead. All right, so... They got the scriptural experience, and it wasn't until they sat down to dinner when it suddenly clicked, he has risen from the dead, but their minds were prepared by the scriptures. Now, with the women, it was the opposite. They had the experience, the empty tomb, the angels appearing. Then came the reminder of what Jesus had said. Here's the opposite. They reviewed the scriptures so that when it dawned on them that it was Jesus was with them, it all fit together, and they were ready to go. But now, here's the irony. They come to the upper room, they share it with the disciples, and nobody's excited. Because, you see, they're hearing these secondhand reports, they're hearing a little bit of scripture and stuff, but still they don't know what to believe or not. And it's in that context that Jesus comes. And not only does Jesus appear, and the whole point about eating the fish, etc., was to prove, yes, this is me. I was raised from the dead bodily. I'm not a ghost. So he's proving that he is truly flesh and bones and et cetera. Uh, even though he can walk through walls now, his resurrected body was similar to the other, but quite amazing in many ways. So he appears to them, but then he establishes their minds in the scriptures, just like he did on the Emmaus Road. It repeats the language of the Emmaus Road. He walks them through the scriptures. So a combination of experience with the Word of God seems to be an element throughout this early weekend for the church. All right, Anthony? I believe it says somewhere that over 500 persons saw him after resurrection. I don't recall the verse I saw that. We have this story of the Emmaus Road. Can we then conclude that there are a whole bunch of other experiences that have happened that the disciples are hearing about? Mm-hmm. There are a total of 11 mentions of resurrection experiences or experiences like the women with the empty tomb. So there's 11 scenes in which either there's an empty tomb or Jesus himself is encountered, etc. It doesn't cover the 500. It's Paul that mentions that, I think, in 1 Corinthians 15. Presumably, he had one mass meeting up in Galilee at some point so that there would be a critical mass of witnesses to the resurrection. So that, I think, is where most scholars would take your question, that there were a number of these onesies and twosies that Jesus was meeting up with people in small groups and individually. But there must have been at least one occasion where a much larger group was encountered. Yeah, I think one of the natural questions to ask is, well, then why didn't he have the big gatherings that he had before he was crucified Why did we have these individual accounts and then he leaves? That's a very interesting question. I invite everyone to think on that and ponder it a little bit. I think within the context of Pine Null, there's always the sense that the question may be more important than the statement. Thinking may be more important than simply accepting. And the mass meeting could be subject to various interpretations. I'd have to assume a large group, but not too large, made sense to God at that time. Michael? After Jesus is crucified, the 11 remaining apostles are in the upper room. What they're doing is hiding. Why? Even though Jesus said he's going to have to do this, they're afraid that they're going to come and arrest them and crucified or otherwise kill some of these apostles, or all of them. So these were not stalwarts of Jesus' word, but reacting to normal human emotion. They were frankly frightened. And 
the story about when Jesus appears and Thomas isn't there, and he's commonly referred to as Downing Thomas, where was he? Well, it appears to me he was the only one brave enough to go outside to see whether or not it was safe or something along those lines. Yeah, the most doubting disciple was not Thomas. It was more likely Philip in the various accounts. He's the one that's kind of saying, well, you know, how can we possibly do this with only so many fish, you know, and things like that. But yes, we see the disciples wrestling with these things. And keep in mind, the disciples hadn't seen Pentecost yet. Pentecost was the moment, I think, when everything was clear and they understood for the first time the full scope of what had just happened in Jesus Christ. But at the moment of fear, all that they knew was that Jesus had died and maybe the whole thing was, you know, just a mistake. And if the whole thing was a mistake, then preserving their lives was the number one value at that point. But as they began to realize that the death of Christ actually served God's purpose, and was going to be part of something way bigger. It changed everything for them. Neil? You have to remember, it wasn't just an ordinary person that would have been crucified. It would have been an anarchist, and they were afraid of being accused of the same thing. Therefore, they had a good reason to be afraid. Yes, they did, at least certainly from a human perspective. We may tend to judge them from our perspective, where we know all these things that hadn't happened to them yet, (laughs) and we have the advantage of thinking along those lines. Acts 1, 12 to 26, shows the disciples about 40 days or so after Jesus' resurrection. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, together the crowd numbered about 120 people, and said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his position of overseer. So one of the men who have accompanied us throughout the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. All right, it's an interesting process of replacing Judas. It was a combination of, well, we thought about it and we came up with these two names, and now we let God decide which of these names. It doesn't tell us how, you know, did they roll dice? Did they have stones in a bag or something? You know, maybe a white stone, a black stone, and named each of them and then shook up the bag and had somebody stick their hand and pick one out. We don't know exactly the methodology that they used, but it was a combination of reason and allowing God the opportunity to express an opinion. The question is, who are these people? We had 12 disciples, and now we have 120. So who are all these people? And one thing that's often overlooked is that Jesus had two groups. He had the 12, but he also had the 70. Only Luke mentions the 70. And so that would be relevant to somebody reading the book of Acts. And I would suggest that you have uh, the 12, 
the 70. By the way, they're named in early Christian writings in the second and third centuries. Names such as Barnabas, Nason, who appears in chapter 21 of the book of Acts, Silas, who went with Paul, Cleopas, who was on the Emmaus Road, Stephen, one of the deacons, Agabus, who was a prophet that Paul meets at one point along the way. So there were about 70 individuals who were with Jesus from the beginning. And so Matthias and this other Joseph called Barsabbas, these would have been among the 70, the larger group from which then you could take replacements for the 12. And you wonder, why do they need to replace the 12th? Why not just go with 11? And the answer in the text is, well, we're going with 12 because Scripture said that. When somebody messes up, you replace his place. The number 12 uh, was quite important. A little point to keep in mind, that 12 was the number of Israel. That was the number of sons that Jacob had. What does 70 represent? 70 is the number of nations in Genesis 10. After the flood, the family of Noah scattered out and ended up forming 70 nations from which Abraham was called out to start a new nation, which would be representing the 12. So 12 represents Israel, but 70 represents God's desire for the nations, that even the nations that were not part of Israel were important to God. And the 70 disciples represented those other nations. So I think you have some spouses here. You had the 70, you had the 12. And so that makes up the total that you have in the book of Acts. So they did two things here. They were organizing themselves and preparing for mission, but they were also praying that God would lead and would bring the Holy Spirit. And in chapter two, that's exactly what happens. So in chapter two, it's the day of Pentecost. That's 50 days after Passover. And by the way, that's the same day when Moses came down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. So I think the tie-in there is, is a deliberate one. There's a rushing mighty wind and disciples speak in other tongues. And while that can mean different things in the ancient world, it in this case was considered other languages that the disciples were able to share the message in languages they themselves did not know. And Peter, when preaching about it, you here you have again an event. You have an experience. The disciples speaking these other languages was a stunning event and would have had a remarkable impact on those who observed what was going on, those who recognized they're being spoken to in their own language by someone who didn't know that language. So you have the miracle, you have the experience, but then Peter connects it to the scriptures, Joel chapter 2. And he quotes from Joel 2 and said, this is exactly what God said would happen when the last days come. We are here. We are seeing dramatic end time things going on. And so Jesus preaches the resurrection of Jesus and gives some evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So Let's go, for the sake of time, let's go and not read the whole chapter. When Peter says Jesus was raised from the dead, what evidence did he give that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead? Acts 2, 32 to 36. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. All right, so what do you see in that text? What's the evidence that you're an observer of Peter's sermon, all right? And you know that Jesus was crucified. You know that some people are claiming he was raised from the dead. You know that there's this dramatic experience going on. And then Peter teaches these verses, 32 to 36. What do you see in there that would have impact? What is Peter saying is the evidence that God has raised Jesus to life? I would start with verse 32, where he says, God raised him to life 
And we are all witnesses of that fact. All right. So one evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead, there were a bunch of people who actually saw him. And when you got a bunch of people, their stories can be, if they're made up, are likely to be chaotic in a hurry. But if they had an actual experience, uh, there are certain things that would occur. So Peter is saying, we are witnesses. The fact that there are many of us should get your attention. And by the way, in between the resurrection of Jesus and chapter one were 40 days. And somewhere in there would have been the 500 that we talked about earlier. What else do you see here? What else is the evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead? You don't want to just take people's word for it, right? What is being connected together with it? All right, Livius, give it a try. I was just going to continue to verse 33, and it says that the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing so, evidence. So he's saying that Pentecost itself is the evidence. And how would that be? What does Pentecost have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? Michael? Well, here is this fisherman from Galilee who apparently is able to speak in foreign languages. Where did he learn that suddenly? 40 days ago, he couldn't speak Greek or he couldn't speak Latin or whatever, Parthian or whatever it was. And now he's able to. That's got to convince anybody. Has he gone to college? Has he been educated? No, he's just a fisherman. All right. So what we're seeing happening here is, again, a combination of experience. The people experiencing these tongues, this was a powerful witness that if this is possible, then maybe resurrection is possible, too. And after all, in the book of Daniel and Isaiah, there's a couple of places, at least, that suggest that resurrection at the end of time is possible. And Peter says, what you're seeing is exactly what Joel predicted. So scripture is coming together with their experience in order to powerfully witness to the truth of what is being said here. Sean? Yes. Is Peter attempting to make that combination of experience and evidence by citing some passages in Psalm here as a way to give credibility to the experience that they're having? I find that the passages in the book of Psalm are rather I don't know why or how he's using those to make that connection, but he does use Psalm 16 as part of this package of evidence. Well, it's interesting. You're going back to verse 25 of Acts 2, and it says, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand and I will not be shaken. So David has an experience with Yahweh. And he says, therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, etc., because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So Peter seems to be understanding that as a prediction of the resurrection, first of all, of David's resurrection at the end of time, but second of all, the resurrection of Yahweh, Holy One, in some form. So this became, Psalm 16 became an important text for the early church, that's of a prediction of the resurrection. Earlier it was asked, the sanctuary predict the resurrection? I still haven't thought of anything there, but certainly Psalm 16 was one place. Jonah was another one that people saw as a forecast of the resurrection of Jesus. So in verses 33 to 36, verse 36, he says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Who is Peter talking to? He keeps saying, you crucified him. You killed him. He's talking to people who are involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, when you let that sink in, what happens next is pretty amazing. Look at the response, verse 37 of Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? All right. So if you had your hand in crucifying Jesus, whether it was only to say crucify him, or whether you were actually one of the people that arrested him, one of the people that whipped him, one of the people that mocked him, etc. If you had a part in that, and now you have overwhelming evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead by God, vindicating him and condemning anyone who had a part in his crucifixion. They said, what should we do? 
And notice this amazing answer, verses 38 to 40. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. All right, so here he's talking to people who are involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And I say, if this is all true, if Jesus is raised from the dead, if he has God's approval, we don't, even though we thought we did up until this moment. What we did, we thought we were doing for God. And then Peter says to them, repent and repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, specifically the sins of crucifying Jesus. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for you and your children and for all those who are far off. Before this week, I had never really seen that, that in Acts 2, we have the glimmerings of the gospel to the Gentiles. That's the whole purpose of the book of Acts. So it's not surprising that Luke would have highlighted that at this point. He's telling the book of Acts to show how the gospel went from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. But Peter already captures the glimmerings of the vision that if those who crucified Jesus can be saved, then what Gentile is too far away? Did Peter fully get it at this moment? It's obvious that he did not. He needed a vision of a sheet, and he needed Paul at some point uh, grabbing him by the scruff of the neck and shaking him a few times before he really caught the full implications of this. But that the gospel is truly for everyone, I think, becomes clear at this point in the story. So in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, we see the foundation of the mission that the church was to have. How did they carry out the mission? Verses 41 to 47. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. That very term, added to, implies equality. In other words, there was a community here. To be added to that community means you're part of that community. And so it was a very welcoming kind of thing. The Lord added whoever it was that the Holy Spirit was pointing out to them. From this text, what does it suggest is the way that they nurtured people after baptism. So 3,000 people get baptized, but obviously most of them were not fully disciples of Jesus at that point. What were the methods that they used to train them in? What does this text tell us? Anthony? The text says doctrines and fellowship after 3,000 were added. Okay. What does that mean to you, doctrines and fellowship? Well, it gives a little bit of detail. It says, and breaking of bread and in prayers. So, obviously, they were meeting together, they were eating, they were discussing, maybe like we're discussing right now, and sharing. Yeah, I've often thought like this little group is sort of a model of the house church in ancient times when we wrestle together with the meaning of the scriptures and the things that we have experienced. It talks about the apostles teaching. It's interesting, the word for teaching is didache, and perhaps the earliest book written by Christians outside the New Testament, is called the didache, the teaching. And it is considered by scholars the first catechism. It was Bible lessons for new believers. So the apostles were training the new believers in what the scriptures were teaching. And fellowship, of course, is developing relationships and using those relationships as a training mode. How do you disciple people? How do you train people? There's a very simple formula. It's in four steps. Number one, 
I do and you watch. Number two, I do and you help. Number three, you do and I help. And number four, you do and I watch. Do you see the progression there? This is what happens in relationship when people are meeting together, talking together, working together. Those who are more experienced will be leading out in the actions, but others are encouraged to watch and then over time to help. And there comes a time when you say, okay, it's your turn to take the lead today and I'll help you. Let's see how that goes. And then eventually you take the lead, I'll watch. And if that goes well, we'll send you off to go somewhere else. So the lesson brings out that the early disciples preached Christ. The Messiah had come verified by the power of God in both the resurrection and Pentecost. But that now many new believers were coming in and they needed training, etc. Remember angle scale? Once people are baptized, that's just the zero point. There are whole stages of becoming more and more devoted as followers of Jesus Christ. What this lesson has brought out, and I think it's very important for us to consider, is the importance of experience. You know, we tend to emphasize scripture and scripture alone. But the Methodists came up with an idea that's sometimes called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And that suggests that our experience with God is really a fourfold thing. We engage with scripture, and scripture's primary for Protestants. That is the number one way that God reliably communicates with us, but it's not the only way. There is tradition. And what is tradition? It's the collective wisdom of those who read the Bible before you. If you have the Bible, why do you need tradition? Simply because you get the Bible wrong sometimes. And seeing how wise people in the past have read it can open your eyes. But on top of that, there is reason and experience. And we see the role of experience very powerfully in the chapters that we looked at today, that through the Holy Spirit, God will bring people experiences that enlighten their reading of Scripture. Before Jesus was raised from the dead, a lot of passages in the Old Testament were just blanks to the disciples. But once they'd experienced the resurrection of Jesus, suddenly the whole Old Testament starts making sense to them. So experience is very important. Reason is important. Ask questions. Think it through, etc. Tradition for Seventh-day Adventists, the Adventist pioneers are an important tradition, but so are the writings of Ellen G. White, that we feel that God had communicated to her some important things that we should attend to even years after her death. So we all, I think, approach the Bible from a standpoint of tradition, reason, and experience. It's just sometimes we act as if we don't. We're simply I'm reading the Bible as it is, and and that's all there is to say about it. But in actual fact, we read the Bible from a rich context of our experience, our thought processes, and the things that we've learned in the past. Arthur, would you like to speak closing words? It's just a remark. When I read the Bible, especially the Book of Acts, and I notice what was happening at that time during Pentecost, Uh, We've just read how all of the apostles teaching and they had fellowship and as well as breaking of bread. Sometimes I feel like what I read in the New Testament compared to what I see around me is like two different worlds. I do appreciate, like you said, that we have a lot of teaching, but now sometimes I feel like the experience is lacking to, to a certain extent. You know, you read about the passion they had and they would hear the spirit telling them the way to move. And this resonates a bit to the early days of Adventism, where I feel there was a lot of passion there and a lot of miracles, if you will. So it's more of a question of what are we getting wrong? Why is it different now? Why does it feel like we are just studying, but there is not that passion, not that sharing that we at least read about in the book of Acts? So it's just a comment that I had to mention. Well, you're saying kind of the same kinds of things I would have said in drawing this to a close. So thank you for those closing words. I think we live in a time, especially those in the Protestant tradition, have tended to put the Scripture first, I think rightly so. But Scripture without experience, the lesson is telling us, can be simply dry. It can be detached from reality. And so the question that we can ask ourselves today 
is what experience does God want to bring us? Are we open to that experience? Or do we want to just stay where we are? Certainly, if God starts working powerfully in today's world, a lot of us will be uncomfortable. It will break us away from familiar understandings and familiar teachings. It'll move us in directions we would not expect. So I invite you to consider in this coming week, thinking about what is it that I am not experiencing now that God would want me to? Where would the Holy Spirit come with power in my life and my context that people might have a clearer and clearer picture of who God is? Anyway, thank you for those thoughts. Thank you all for this discussion. Let's pray as we close. Dear Lord, we feel the challenge. As we look at the disciples' experience, it seems that ours is very limited by comparison. On the other hand, we may be rich where they were weak in a deep and lifelong exposure to the scriptures in the light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So I pray, dear Lord, that you would balance our experience, that you would give us a fresh insight into where you are working in today's world. And may our hearts be open to your leading for Jesus' sake. Amen.